0: Hello. This is the Kaiju Transmissions podcast. My name's Kyle Bird, and my co-host, Mr. Matt Parmley, has something hey, to you. yes, and he has something to say to all of you out there in podcast land.
1: So we are announcing a fan contest. Uh, we want you, our lovely listeners, to have a chance to come on our show and record an episode with us, and you can pick the topic. So the way this works, being in contests, is you go out to Facebook or Twitter and share our latest episode, whatever that happens to be, and then you email us at kaijutransmissions at gmail.com, a list of topics that you think might be cool to come on and discuss with us, and then we will select a random winner uh, sometime in early February, and then we will record an episode in late February, all right? So the way this works, one more time, go on Twitter, go on Facebook, share the latest episode, and then immediately after that, email us a list of topics that you think will be fun to discuss. Got it? Make
0: sense? And yeah, you get to choose the topic you want to talk to us about, as long as it's within the, the boundaries of what we do. Uh, we want to talk to you, so share the podcast, keep listening, and uh, hopefully you keep enjoying it.
1: Cool, and... uh twitter is kt underscore podcast facebook just look us up under kaiju transmissions in our email one last time kaiju transmissions at gmail.com
0: Okay, we are rolling, and this is another edition of Kaiju Transmissions. Um, I am your host, Kyle Bird. With me is my co-host. Matt Parmley. And we are joined by a very special guest, who after a lot of uh, uh, back and forth and scheduling conflicts, we have finally been able to uh, uh, lasso him for a small portion of the evening that he has been very generous to give us his time with. Uh, Mr. Steve Rifle, the author of the new book, Ishiro Honda, A Life in Film from Godzilla to Kurosawa, which he wrote with Ed Godzicheski, who uh, anyone who has done any English language research on the Godzilla series will know those names. I know for myself, uh, I am 32, so maybe I'm... Dating myself, but in elementary school, I was always poring over the pages of G-Fan Magazine and other publications, reading articles by these guys. And of course, uh, when all the other kids in silent reading, which was a reading for pleasure, uh, 15-minute breaks... They were reading their Goosebumps books or sports magazines, and I was reading Japan's Favorite <laughs> Monstar, <laughs> which was written by Steve, or Ed's uh, Illustrated Encyclopedia of Godzilla. So, um, And uh, a lot of great, great work these guys have done. This is a book I've been excited about for years since it was announced. Shiro Honda is my favorite director. I can't think of anyone in the arts music, film, what have you, whose work has meant as much to me as uh, Honda's. So, uh, everyone, give it up for Steve. Steve, thank you so much for being here with us. It is a pleasure. Oh,
2: thank, thank you very much for having me. Uh, this is uh, it's a lot of fun. Thank you.
0: Um, so, yeah, I mean, <laughs> this book was really a labor of love that took a very long time to put together. Uh, I mean, is it, how does it feel now that it's out there? It's being It seems to be being received well. I mean, is it s- kind of surreal to kind of finally have this thing off your shoulders?
2: Uh, it's a relief, and I'm glad that, you know, the work that we put into it seems to be um, uh, registering with people. Um, you know, uh, it did take a long time, but it's, you know, it's kind of uh, deceiving when you look at the number of years since we started working on it because it's not as if you know it was a, a 24/7 or even a 40 hour a week kind of operation i mean you're writing something like this in the midst of your everyday life you know we, neither one of us is an academic neither one of us can go on sabbatical for 6 months or a year and just work on this so uh you know that 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 is part of it being a labor of love you're you're actually um taking time out of your life, out of your work life, out of your personal life to devote to this type of a project, which is, um, you know, it was very personal for both of us because just as you said, uh, I mean, Honda's had a great deal of um, uh, inspiration and influence over our lives from from a very young age. I mean, his films sparked our imaginations and they were, uh, kind of, his films are kind of like gateway drugs to to all the other wonderful things about cinema and about genre cinema, and um, these are films. Uh, one of the I mean, the, one of the remarkable things about them that um, and almost anybody who's a fan of them will tell you 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 can start off watching these things as, as a child uh, for purely. Um, uh, visceral reasons, you know. The, one of the things that draws kids in is the uh, the spectacle of the destruction and the monsters fighting. But as you grow older and hopefully wiser, I mean, there there are other things in them that we can appreciate too. So it was fun to go back after all these years and um, look at the films with a more critical eye and try to figure out, um, you know, by watching them and by looking at. Everything that was going on in the world and in Japan around the time that, you know, to, to in looking at the context in which they were made and in which Honda made them to learn more about what made this man and this filmmaker tick and the things that motivated him to make these films in, in the way that he did and that was kind of ultimately the whole goal around this project, which was to learn more about him and uh, try to tell his story because he's somebody who. Uh, has been overlooked by cinema history uh, despite the remarkable achievements that he had in his career.
0: Yeah, and obviously um, I didn't mention, but you guys you and Ed did uh, a number of commentaries for um, the classic media line uh, of DVDs. Um, So did this project come together around then? How exactly did you guys Get this. Get the ball rolling on this. Uh,
2: well, it was a series of things, but yeah, I mean, we've told this story I think a few times now. But the, the basic genesis of it was uh, Ann and I were producing, uh, co-producing a documentary film called "Bringing Godzilla Down to Size," which eventually uh, came out on uh, as a bonus feature on the mm-hmm. War of the Gargantuas and so, Rodan uh, yeah, double disc.
0: Great documentary, by the way.
2: Yeah, thank you. No, yeah, that we're really proud of that. And um, um and it's on YouTube for anybody who hasn't seen it. Um, so, yeah, we were in Japan shooting that film with uh, Norman England, who directed it, and uh, all the other wonderful people that we collaborated with. And that was for Classic Media. You mentioned Classic Media. It was supposed to be part of their um, box set. They were going to do a bigger box set that they ended up uh, jettisoning. But um, while we were there shooting it, we were traipsing around Tokyo, doing all of these interviews. And uh, one of the places where we stopped, uh, it was the um, the production offices of um, Akira Tsuburaya, the son of A.G. And um, we bumped into the son of Ishiro Honda there. We had no intention of or, or knowledge. We didn't know that he was working for Akira Tsuburaya. But he walked into the office and... Um, we ended up having a conversation with him. We kind of on the right on the spot there asked him if he would be interviewed for our documentary and he said yes. And um, and then we stayed in touch with him and it was kind of his idea to uh he, he, he was interested in having a book published about his dad and he was kind of interested in having it done by uh American or, you know, Western writers. So we we kind of just uh Started this uh, correspondence. Not long thereafter, I sort of tested the waters um, to see if there was, uh, you know, were publishers out there um, who who would want to do something like that. I was a little leery because the publishing experience uh, with my first book, uh, the Godzilla book that I wrote about, um, uh, a little bit less than ten years. Uh, prior to that i had such a negative experience trying to get that published so i was really kind of uh, a little bit leery about doing this because i just didn't want to have to go through all of that again but the good thing was that um, working with Yuji honda and the honda family they were able uh, to open some doors for us uh, not necessarily with publishers in the united states but you know they were able to kind of act as an intermediary uh, between us and Toho on certain things. And also, you know, when we went to Japan to do research, they were able to help facilitate some of those uh, meetings and, and uh, they helped locate some, some documents. And also Riji introduced us to his daughter, uh, Honda's granddaughter, Yuko Honda, whose name appears on the front of the book because uh, she was like an equal thought partner in this thing she she jumped in uh completely and, and helped us with the research and um uh went well above and beyond what anybody could have expected um so not only did she have like this first hand knowledge of her grand, she lived with her grandfather when she was a child her dad used to go on these long uh trips to america to work NH- NHK as a documentary filmmaker so he'd be gone for uh, long stretches of time and then she would stay with the Hondas uh, her grandfather and grandmother and so she had really uh, a close relationship with him uh, during her childhood and uh, so she had this personal stake in you know, trying to see that his story be told at long last and that it be told well and completely and uh, so uh and she was the one who really enabled us to to dive really deeply into the other side of his career which was something that ed and i really wanted to do it was actually one of the primary reasons why we wanted to do this project which was to explore the other half of his career, which has nothing to do with science fiction, really. It's um, the you know, dramatic films and the com- comedic films and the war films that he made um, during mostly during the 1950s. And we thought by doing that, we'd learn... Uh, more about him as a filmmaker and kind of create this more, um, you know, this holistic picture of him rather than, I mean, the whole idea is, you know, this isn't just a guy who made Godzilla movies. This is a filmmaker with a capital F. And, um, you know, this is, this is, book is really not just his personal story, but it's the story of all the ideas and, uh, you know, themes running through all of his movies, which you know, that's his body of work. And um, up until now, even in Japan, um, this you know, this guy's career hasn't been looked at in this more complete way. Yuko was really instrumental in in making that happen because um, she was able to. You know, none of these films are subtitled. Most of them aren't even commercially available in Japan, so we had to track them down through different uh, resources. Uh, some of them, you know, that we eventually were able to find from. Uh, people who had collected them by taping them off cable television. Some of them had had aired on, you know, the equivalent of something like TCM in Japan. So yeah, a lot of those didn't have subtitles or really any of them. And she, we would all watch the films, and she would be uh, translating uh, massive amounts of dialogue. And then you know, we'd all, you know, we were in different parts of the country. She's in uh, she was living at that time in upper uh, upstate New York. I'm in Los Angeles, Ed's in Chicago. We would have these conference calls after we would schedule, you know, everybody watch this film this week. And then we'd have a conference call or two the next week, and we'd all, you know, meet on the phone and and hash it out and share our thoughts on the film. It was very collaborative, and and that's how we got all that done. Because the main main thing right now is just to try to get the word out and get people to read the thing.
0: Yeah, Yeah, you guys definitely put in the work. uh, And, I mean, you guys put in work no one else... (laughs) what <laughs> was willing to do did was there um did you and Ed split author duties in any particular way uh or, or anything like that
2: well i mean uh i would say that ed and i have been working together um on and off now for um i don't know 10 years or more and um in all of the things that we've done up till you know forever we've always uh Uh, play to our strengths you know and so he has certain experience and i have certain experience and um so we divide the work on whatever project that we do based on who does what well and uh that's kind of what we did here um you know i'm i've got a lot more experience um my background is that of a journalist i'm a professional journalist i've written for a lot of newspapers and magazines over the years i have experiences uh as a critic I'm you know trained in criticism, and I've done a lot of that both literary criticism and some film criticism and um, and Ed is more interested in and uh, better at I think factual information i mean that's just more where he's coming from he's not uh, i think as geared towards um you know critiquing a film as much as I am, so you know that's kind of how we divided things up
1: well let's dive into some of the the Biography itself. Um, one of my one of the things I think I was fascinated when I read the book was learning about Honda's early life. Uh, can you t- talk about just some of the his hobbies and maybe some of the influences from his childhood that would later impact his filmmaking?
2: Well, he read a lot. Um, you know, uh, there was um, you know he's a country boy essentially or a mountain boy. He grew up in a small village in a mountain community. Uh, He was pretty isolated. This is what I find kind of interesting about his, his uh, uh, upbringing and his development. Uh, This is someone who had really never seen a train until he boarded one for Tokyo. Uh, They didn't have movie houses uh, where he lived. And uh, he didn't even really start reading uh, publications from the outside world. Until uh, one of his brothers left to go to school and started sending him home uh, science magazines. And um, he became this voracious reader. And, um, you know, it's uh, serendipitous or certainly fortuitous that he uh, moved to Tokyo at a young age. His father was a Buddhist monk. And um, he uh, was reassigned to a temple in the city of Tokyo when Honda was still in grade school. And, um, and so when he moved to Tokyo, the whole world up, opened up to him. And so, the, and the main interest from a very young age is cinema, I mean, it, it's something that stayed with him. And, it, and you have to, you know, we, I mean, cinema is still a very young art form, right? But in those days it was, you know, incredibly new. And not only in, in, in Japan, but in, in the entire world. And so you just it, you can only imagine what it must have been like for this country boy, this mountain boy, moving to the city, and then one day at school, so you know the, they bring in a projector and they show this moving picture to these kids, and he was instantly uh, fascinated with and really hooked on this new medium. Uh, As a matter of fact, the first film, as it's told in the book, the first film that he saw was one of these... um, There were these um, westerns that came over from America. A lot of the films that were initially shown in Japan were imported because because there wasn't uh, much production going on for several years. But he saw one of these... um, They were called the Bluebird westerns. And um, he... Uh, was hooked on this, and then he started going to movies himself, either with his uh, one of his older brothers, or uh, sometimes sneaking off and going by himself. And the, you know, it st- it started in childhood. It stayed with him throughout his adolescence. By the time he becomes uh, of age to to go to college, he actually. Had promised his older brother that he would study dentistry. His, his older brother, by that time, was a physician, and he thought that uh, Honda would would go into dentistry and that they would form a, a clinic and, and uh, practice, you know, side by side. But Honda learned that uh, uh, Nihon University was launching a film program, and it was really kind of an exper- experimental, uh, a trial program essentially, because it was something that really hadn't been taught at the, the university level before in, in Japan and really in anywhere in the world. He was in the right place at the right time. Uh, that's where he met one of his first major mentors, who was the um, the film producer Iwao Mori, who later became an executive at Toho, and was one of these early um, champions of Japanese cinema, he uh, had started off as a film critic, and he always um, was concerned that Japanese filmmaking methods were lagging far behind those of, of Hollywood. And he, uh, he was very much uh, a booster of the industry. He felt that it had to advance in terms of uh, uh, technical achievement and technological capability and he was also a champion of of finding young hungry uh, talented people and so that's one of the reasons um, he went to the university to teach because he
3: would form these um, think tanks where he would uh, uh, have these talented
2: students kind of like the the cream of the crop and uh, they would get together and uh, uh, talk about film talk about art And from that group, you know, he would pick people to basically become interns or, or low level, um, you know, uh, entry level employees at the studio. So that's kind of how Honda got his start. But you see this through line all the way from childhood to, to college, and then into the start of his career. Uh, It's just a
1: lifelong passion for film. I want to ask um, about Honda's war experience. And there's a lot of Great stories, but also just incredibly harrowing stories in the book. Um, one of the things that Honda, that he's quoted as saying, he wrote in his journal, I guess, he, he wrote, I'm trying to adjust the environment around me, but if you're a normal person in this place, you either kill yourself or you would go crazy. Um, and that's, in, that's kind of, that was a quote from him in regards to some of the things that he suffered through during his uh, time in China. So can you talk about some of the, the stories that, and things that he went through during the war? Uh, and how that might have impacted him later on
2: yeah i know I sh- and y- this is kind of um, th- a fascinating thing because for all the things that we learned about his war experience uh and i think we learned quite a lot this is still like the one area of his life that i would love to be able to continue uh, researching and learning about i think you know if ever if ever we're, we have an opportunity to do a second edition uh, this is the the one area where I would most like to expand upon. But, uh, you know, right from the, the get-go, uh, shortly after he was drafted, uh, he was stationed in Tokyo, and uh, there was uh, an incident that's really not taught too much in, in our... I mean, it's not something you uh, a high school student would would learn about in their uh, studies of World War II history. Um, But there was an incident that is now commonly referred to as the 226 incident or the February 26 incident. And it was uh, an attempted coup uh, against the civilian government by this uh, renegade group of right-wingers in the Japanese military. And Honda wasn't part of it, but he was affected by it because he always felt that the reason that his service was extended, the reason he was drafted three times over the course of a decade, and the reason he was made to spend so much time at the front in China was that he had this, uh, he was essentially guilty by association with the leaders of this coup. So he served uh, the better part of a decade going back and forth uh, between China and Japan. It interrupted his, his um, movie career because this happened, you know, the, the draft notice arrived, the first draft notice arrived, shortly after he started working at the studio. Honda was a low-level assistant director when he joined the studio. And the assistant director program at Toho, as well as at the other Japanese studios at that time, unlike in Hollywood, the assistant director programs were essentially um, apprenticeship programs for directors. So, if meaning that if you were picked for the role of assistant director, that meant that the studio viewed you eventually as director material. Um, and so you were on that path. But um, because he was drafted so soon after his career got rolling, it set him back. Kurosawa, who we tell the story in the book, Kurosawa joined the studio after Honda, but as well as a number of other uh, assistant directors. But uh, Kurosawa and, and others were promoted to the first assistant director role long before Honda, because Honda was off at the front fighting. And, and then again, this is somebody who had no political convictions. He was not interested in the cause of the war whatsoever. He served his country and carried out his duties, but he did so only with an eye towards surviving and coming back home and going back to work. Because, again, this lifelong love of movies, this is really what he wanted to do with his life. That was his goal, was to to learn the craft and to have his chance. You know, there, there were a number of things that happened during the war that affected his view uh, and eventually would come out in his films. Uh, the story that you hear most often, I think, is the one about how when he was returning to Japan, uh, he passed through the, the ruins of Hiroshima. Uh, I think that story gets told a lot because it sounds like a great story. And, um, and of course, he made Godzilla, which is all about Hiroshima, or, or it's at least it's all about nuclear proliferation and the idea that, um, you know, we've set ourselves on this path of... Uh, self-destruction. But, but the, the truth of the matter is, you know, I had always imagined, you know, Honda you know, in his fatigues on his way home, walking through the, the, the ashes of Hiroshima and, and really being deeply moved by this. Um, but that's not really the case. He was actually one of many uh, soldiers being repatriated. In this case, he had been a, a prisoner of war. He was held in, in captivity in China. Uh, it took a long time for the, um, the American forces who came in and uh, occupied Japan. They kind of organized the repatriation of the Japanese troops from China and from uh, the other, the uh, South Pacific and other occupied territories. And that process took a long time. But I always imagined that you know this story would have had this profound uh, impact upon him. But when you read about it, he was on a train, and uh, he passed the train passed the city of Hiroshima, and he said he couldn't even really see that much because they had um, put up fences around the damaged area, so as the train passed by, what what he saw was pretty limited, and he did not get off the train and the train stopped there to, I guess to pick up and drop off people, but it wasn't like a you know a layover or anything like that.
0: I mean, even with the, the Hiroshima story being a little bit embellished, I mean, when people read the book, they'll read that there's, you know, enough horrific uh, war experience that he had. At one point, he was working at a brothel. There was a point mm-hmm. where an explo- uh, a shell landed next to him, and it didn't explode, and, you know, he could have died. So, I mean, we don't want to spoil the book, but that's... I mean, there's there's enough there that, you know, you don't have to make <laughs> up something about him no, visiting no, Hiroshima. No, no.
2: no, well, you know, as a writer, I mean, that was the material that I most wanted to to dive into. To me, Honda's story is, is an epic one. So there was this epic story there that I thought, it, we, you know, we could see it from the beginning. Somebody who starts off with humble, it's kind of a classic thing, humble beginnings. And then there's, you know, it has, shows great promise. And then there is all this adversity that uh, the person encounters, and at the end of the line, he achieves some, but maybe not all of everything that he set out to do. Um, but in this case, I think Honda's story kind of has a, a really happy ending, uh, because not only does he reunite with his best friend and start to uh, and have a chance late in life to make films the way that they wanted to make them, but also he left us with this great legacy of entertainment films that you know like we said before i mean how ma- there's so many of them i mean godzilla is the film that matters and you know 100 or 200 years from now when the cockroaches uh you know inherit the earth and they're looking through the video vaults and they come across a shiro honda that's the film that they'll watch and, and understand that you know it really has something to say but uh, beyond that all the other films that we love that he made i mean are are truly entertaining and they've lasted in ways that he could have never anticipated Um, so
0: oh i I was gonna switch gears to kurosawa unless you had something uh did you want to add anything else to what you were saying
2: you know, it's funny. You, you you know you touched on the uh, the incident with the, the bomb and the in mm-hmm. the, the war. I mean, I was kind of you're right. I was a little dancing around it a l- little bit because I'm ho- I don't want to sp- quote unquote spoil it. But this is another thing that uh, you know undoubtedly uh, shaped his his uh, view of life. I mean, one of the things that that um, recurs there's there's a. a I don't want to call it a poem, but there's a little thing that uh, is written in verse at the beginning of the book. I guess you could call it verse, right? It's a uh, little uh, piece, like uh, a—it's not a poem, but it's it's kind of written in a verse form. But it—it kind of sets forth one of the themes of the book, which is uh, that death is right over your shoulder. And that you've, you know, you. This is a person who knew that from the from very a very young age, a relatively young age, because of all the horrors that he saw in the war. And this is clearly somebody who was not fighting the war for any, you know, nationalistic or or patriotic reason. He was there because he had been put there, and he was made to do and see, uh, you know, horrible things. But uh, you know, his whole uh, approach was pers- one of perseverance, you know, and survival. As I said earlier. And one of the things that happened to him uh, was uh, during a skirmish with, uh, with some Chinese soldiers, uh, there was a mortar that landed right near him. And um, it, you can imagine if, if a bomb landed right next to you out in, in a field, time would slow down and you would think for that split second, I'm about to be blown to smithereens. And normally that's what would have happened, but by uh, the good graces of you know, pick your your uh, your supreme being, um, he was spared, and um, he had another chance. He had a chance, another chance to go home and to do what he wanted to do. And as a memento or a keepsake or a reminder of this experience and of how close death is at any moment, he went back uh, when the dust settled, and he was able to retrieve that shell. And he took it home with him and um, and it sat on his desk for uh, for the remainder of his life and uh, Ed and I actually had an opportunity to hold this thing and actually, it was quite terrifying because I was <laughs> wondering that you know is this, this thing isn't still so alive, is it? <laughs> <laughs> but there's a photograph so of it yeah, the, waited uh, to the right moment, but you know it's, it's a, there's a photograph of it in the book and um, and yes he um, he um worked at a comfort station, which is a nice word for a brothel. Uh, and and uh, he tried to make the best of it. He tried to console the, the, the women who were uh, forced to work there as sex slaves. Uh, horrific situation. And it's a, you know, this, this topic actually comes up a couple of times when I've done library talks about the book because it's something that's kind of in the news now. I don't know if you've noticed, but the, uh, there's a dispute in the news right now between, um, uh, the mayor of Osaka and, uh, the city of San Francisco, uh, there was a statue. I don't know if the statue has been erected yet, or if it's just a proposed, uh, project, but, um, the Korean American community in San Francisco has, uh, wants to, or has already erected a statue like in, in memoriam or a, a memorial statue, uh, for the comfort women who are mostly Korean women. And, um, the mayor of Osaka has threatened to cut off the, the sister city relationship if they do this. And so it's something that never, you know, has never been completely resolved after all these years that the, the Koreans, um, uh, and rightly so feel that Japan hasn't made amends properly and Japan feels, uh, that it has, and that we should move on. And, um, yeah, sensitive
1: subject. Um, I know, uh- but Koichi Sugiyama was like writing articles even in like in US new- newspapers disputing
0: <laughs>
1: the comfort women.
0: Oh, you I know. know. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. Anyway, go ahead, Birdseye. Uh well, I was just saying um it's interesting that, you know, I mean, we've talked about how he really didn't believe in the cause of the uh, of the Japanese in World War 2, really whatsoever. Kurosawa said that Uh, They agreed that it would be a disaster if uh, the military guys, quote-unquote, have won their way if we won the war, and that it would drive the country into a deeper mess. Um, And uh, I think that's a good segue into Kurosawa, because they both had very humanist uh, approaches. Uh, Honda was a, a pretty extreme pacifist, a big humanist. Um, but him and Kurosawa were, as you said, very different. Kurosawa was very demanding, more of a control freak on the set. Honda had a very loose, more collaborative uh, set. Um, can you talk a little bit about the relationship between the two of them? Um, do you think that uh, that might be why they worked so well together professionally, because they did have such different directing styles?
2: Uh, Well, I think they were compatible in, uh, you know, in that, the way of that old cliche, uh, you know, opposites attract or opposites, in this case, opposites, uh, you know, are compatible. Um, You know, Kurosawa had said to the, something to the effect that, you know, uh, know, the reason we got along so well is because, you know, he tolerated my, uh, my temper or my, my temperament. Um, But you know, it's interesting. I mean, Kurosawa obviously, in, at least in terms of his own career, was much more independent-minded. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, it, like like Honda, he started off as a company man. He worked for the studio by and large. But even as far back as the late forties, uh, he was one of the the first. It was part of that first group of filmmakers who sort of broke away from the, the studio system temporarily in order to, in this in that case, they, they they formed something called the Film Art Association. And it was really a way of not so much going independent, but also, it was also a survival tactic because the film industry was in such uh, dire straits at that time because of the labor st- disputes that were going on and um and honda actually worked with that group of people for a short amount of time but once the studio system got back on track and toho essentially uh, resumed production in the early 50s uh, around the time that the occupation was ending uh honda went back to working there because uh that's the environment that he felt comfortable in he also felt a sense of i think Loyalty to the company because that's where he had been given his start, and that's where the mentors that he had trained with uh, came from. Uh, Kurosawa was from the you know from a the uh, a very young age was somebody who had much more of i guess you would call it an artist personality I mean he was an artist, but um he's a, a very much interested in dictating the terms of his own career. And not really answering. Especially, he had experiences during the uh, during the war, and then again during the occupation, where the censorship authorities, first of the Japanese government and then of the occupation, uh, dictated to him uh, how certain projects could or would be made. And he really uh, did not take to that well. So that that seemed to even strengthen his resolve to to go independent. And uh, one of the interesting things that's related in the book, I think, uh, a couple of things, uh, is that, A, Kurosawa at one point was interested in having um, uh, Honda direct a film. For when when Kurosawa started to, to become a producer and take more control over his own career, one of the first things that he did was uh, strike a production deal with Toho uh, in which he was going to... Uh, fulfill his obligations, not by directing a series of films, but actually supervising them and having other people direct them. And one of those projects was Throne of Blood, and he initially wanted Honda direct to direct it.
0: Um, yeah, I'd never like, heard that before. That would have been. I mean, uh, I love Throne of Blood the way it is, but that definitely would have been pretty cool.
2: Well, yeah, it would have been cool. It would have been a different film, I think. For sure. Um, yeah, but uh, so but that would couldn't happen because. Uh, Kurosawa's name by that point was already uh, valuable and they if they were going to spend that much on the production they wanted Kurosawa to direct it but then uh, shortly after that Kurosawa ended up essentially um, uh, leaving his uh, Toho contract and forming a, a production company that essentially had a, a, I guess what you would call a first look deal with Toho and they had essentially a, a, an exclusive arrangement with Toho to distribute their pictures. But when he did that, he encouraged Honda to do something similar because Kurosawa could see uh, that Honda's films uh, were playing overseas and were were making money for the company, not only domestically, but internationally. And that's one of the things that we state pretty f- upfront in the book. And it's one of the things about Honda and his career that I think are pretty important and yet has Pretty much gone entirely unnoticed over the years, and that is that um, you know if if Rashomon opened up Japanese cinema to the West, Godzilla certainly opened up Japanese popular culture and popular cinema to the West. Honda was the the, the most commercially successful Japanese direct Japanese director on an international scale uh, by far of that time, and he's the most. Internationally successful commercially Japanese filmmaker prior to Miyazaki. And that's significant because he never really was given credit for that. And in fact, the authorship of his films was sometimes taken away from him uh, in the form of, you know, sometimes his name didn't appear in the credits or he had to share his uh, director's credit with uh, someone like, I mean, Thomas Montgomery, who I think is—I'm still convinced that that's an Alan Smithy—the uh, name that's uh, on the credits for the American sequences in King Kong versus Godzilla—and those American sequences are are terrible. They're <laughs> terribly filmed. And they're, I mean, they 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 ruin the picture. But the irony of that is, on the title card, the American director, who again I think is an Alan Smithy. I think it's a uh, a pseudonym for somebody who didn't want his name on the picture that name is bigger than than Honda's. that's <laughs> wrong in, that's wrong in so many ways but oh yeah i mean that so that's you know one of the big reasons why we wanted to write this book uh because we feel like this guy has been shortchanged on multiple levels over the years and um, again this is somebody whose films have been really influential and uh,
0: oh, yeah. I mean, and I mean, the book has a Ford by Martin Scorsese. There's a John Carpenter <laughs> quote. I mean, I mean, everyone, Tim Burton, Quentin Tarantino, Guillermo del Toro. I mean, these are people that are, you know, have come out and openly said that Honda's work is a direct influence, which is yeah, not with the internet it's easier to find that information, you know, um, but yeah, I, I think, I think that is still hopefully combined with this book will continue to kind of spread the word on on the fact that he wasn't just a B movie director. There actually was an intellect and a craft to what he did. Sure,
2: no, that's exactly the point of doing this, and um, uh, I'm glad it's coming across. Yeah. So we
1: talked about Kurosawa. Um, can we touch briefly on Honda's relationship with Subaraya and just kind of what that was, how they worked together. Um and maybe talk about you know the 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 two director system that you often saw in Japan with you know special effects and then live action sequences.
2: Yeah, well, the two director system I think uh, is a uh, a product of necessity. Uh, you know, the the films were made on um, relatively short schedules, and in order to to complete that much work in that much time. You, it, it required having, you know, essentially two crews working uh, in parallel. Um, but the, inter- the the relationship between Honda and Superi is really fascinating. I think uh, Superi had ticked off a lot of other directors because, and and uh, and they ticked him off uh, because special effects. We don't. We talked about, you know, the the fact that cinema and and filmmaking were not necessarily uh, you know, uh, a reputable occupation around the time that Honda decided to go into this field. Well, special effects too, or I then mean, trick photography, people within the, the cinema world looked askance at that. They thought it was just sort of this sort of gimmick. They didn't really, there are a lot of people in the film business who didn't immediately look at Subaraya as a, a credible artist. They looked at him as somebody who created these trick photography sequences for their pictures. And it was, you know, Honda was a little different in that he really respected what Tsuburaya did and um, and they got along, I think, much better because of that. They treated each other as as equals and uh, Honda did not look at, at Tsuburaya as you know a subordinate uh, and quite the opposite, he actually in in his tribute to him after he died he referred to uh, Tsuburaya respectfully as his senpai, which uh, it was partly due to the fact, I'm sure, that uh, Subra was about a decade older than him um, as well, so it's a respectful term. But um, so, so they worked really well together. I don't think any, anybody should um, lose sight of the fact that Honda was the director, and he essentially had Final Cut. But they also had a great deal of trust with one another, and Tsuburaya would accommodate Honda in ways that he might be less inclined to accommodate another director, and at the same time Honda you know, would, would show Tsuburaya the proper respect and take his opinion into consideration, and if the edits that Tsuburaya put together worked, he would use those. But um, it, it was a great collaboration. You know, they didn't get they weren't social friends; they didn't hang out together. Um, but so that was why I thought the story of Honda going to visit Superai in Hawaii uh, when Superai was there shooting the effects for um, None But the Brave. Uh, I thought that was a really fascinating story. Uh, have you guys seen
0: None But the Brave? No, but that's the Frank Sinatra one.
2: Yeah, it's a world. It's it's a World War Two film where uh, uh, Japanese and American soldiers are uh, isolated together, both basically stranded on the same island, on different sides of the same island, and um, it's a little bit like um, what's the film with Lee Marvin and um, uh, Toshiro Mifune is that it came is, out of is, is
0: that Hell in the Pacific?
2: Yeah, Hell in the Pacific. It's a similar type of thing where. Um, uh, but it's done. You know, it's a more of an ensemble piece. Uh, Frank Sinatra is really good in it, and then from Toho, it has um, Kenji Sahara and Tatsuya Mihashi and other people. So it's a it's a if you know for a lot of reasons it's a, it's a good movie. I mean, actually, it's a pretty good war movie from that time period. I mean, maybe I'm. I like it because I like Frank Sinatra and I like Harry Henry Silva and I like the, the Toho actors, but it's actually a legitimately good, you know, entertaining film. And, um, super I went there. They, there's a scene where a, the plane is crash landed on the beach and they shot it with like a, I think it's a full size, uh, replica of the plane. And then they did some, um, uh, exterior shooting there, I guess, too. And later they matted some stuff in, if I'm remembering it, cor- remembering it correctly. But um, anyway, Super aya was there, and um, and Kenji Sahara was there. So Honda paid them a visit, and, you know, why not take a trip to Hawaii? I'm sure it was a great excuse to go. <laughs> and um, while, uh, you know, like I said, they didn't really socialize that much, but Super aya was uh, and Honda were hanging out, And this was around the time that um, Tsuburaya, again, he was somebody who used his success in the film business to uh, take control of his own career and go independent. And he formed uh, what became Tsuburaya Productions. And at that point in time, he was uh, in pre-production or or going into pre-production on what became Ultra Q. And there's a conversation related in the book where he tells uh, Honda, you know, I'm, I'm worried because I'm having trouble finding a lead actor for this new television series that I'm, I'm about to start producing. A lot of film actors didn't want to go into TV. They still thought it was uh, something that was, you know, less prestigious than films. But Honda had a talk with Kenji Sahara and basically um, uh, convinced him, or at least encouraged him to take that role in Tsuburaya's series. And that's how he got the part.
0: Um, speaking of war movies, just to briefly touch on, um, Honda's war movies, uh, you know, Eagle of the Pacific, Farewell Rabal, those were these very pacifists, uh, this pacifistic World War II tales, which I know, um, you know, there was also around the same time, like, the Human Condition movies and, and stuff like that, um, could a movie like that really be made now? I ask because, like, we had Norman England on, and he was telling us about how, uh, a director he knew was trying to pitch a movie about um, one of the guys behind Pearl Harbor and how he'd become like a pacifist and had all these regrets and became a, I think became a Buddhist and, and Toho said no. And instead they did, um, you know, some kamikaze, uh, uh. more, you know, nationalistic kind of war movie. Um, I, do you think a movie like Farewell Rabal could be made in the climate now over there?
2: You're on to something there, even though I don't think this is exactly what you meant. Uh, there's um, a, a th- plot thread in the film about uh, this exotic dancer in the, the bar where all these soldiers kind of congregate and drink. Um, there's, a, there's an element of the film where these guys are kind of just waiting around for the, the war to end or for Japan to, to be defeated. You know, there's this kind of sense running throughout the film of, um, of inevitability. Um, but the, one of the places where they, they spend their time is a bar, which if you look at it carefully and kind of reads a little bit between the lines, you can tell that this bar is essentially a stand in for a comfort station, one of these, uh, uh, whorehouses or Mm -hmm. uh, houses of prostitution where Honda worked during the war. You were asking earlier how these things, uh, you know, his his wartime experiences crept into his films. Um, During the occupation, uh, the whole issue of, uh, well, the the, the issue of the war itself was taboo. It was very difficult to make films about it. But even now, as as we're talking about, this, this issue of comfort women is still kind of difficult to talk about. And it's always been difficult to, Portray in film or literature or, or other mediums, and um, one of the clues in this story is that the exotic dancer who has a, a love affair with one of the pilots, her name is kin which is a Korean name, and uh, she's played by by uh, Akemi Nagishi, who's in a number of Honda films, but she's interesting because she has this as other writers have pointed out, I think, over time, she plays, he he often will cast her as this non-Japanese character. And um, so it's somewhat subtle, uh, but I think, you know, that is, is something about the film, that if it were remade today, I wonder how they would handle that. Because this is still such a touchy subject, and if that, in fact, is what that is meant to represent, would they even now still have to masquerade this comfort station as as something else? I think it's likely that they would. Yeah. But I don't. I don't think that they would make this film because of its its sort of a pacifist or uh, its questioning of the, the the war effort and the the. Uh, the militarism of the times um as you talked about i mean there's, there's things that, i don't know if this would be considered the kind of a story that would make money now and that's really what it's all about
0: yeah um and i think honda cutting his teeth on movies like that and also some of the early dramas um would you say that that was really a bigger part in him getting chosen to direct godzilla That he had kind of a more earnest, um, you even said almost documentary, style? Uh,
2: I don't know. I mean, I'd like to think that's true. Uh, I think part of the reason was that he had made something like Eagle of the Pacific, which was a big uh, blockbuster-type film. And, you know, you've read the story of how Godzilla came to be about how there was this co-production with Indonesia. And that was supposed to be this big blockbuster film. And when Tanaka lost that project, he needed to replace it with something else that was equally um, considered to be of equal, you know, box office potential. And so, in other words, what what it basically boils down to is Godzilla was a big ticket project and they needed a director who could handle a big-ticket mm, project. Right, yeah. I think that's really like the, the, the basic criteria. And as you know from reading our book and probably other books, too, or other things, uh, Honda wasn't the first person that they went to to direct it. It was uh, Sekichi Taniguchi, and possibly others. Honda was the one, though, who enthusiastically uh, said yes, whereas other people, including Taniguchi, said... I don't want to do that because it sounds ridiculous. And, it, you know, by Tsuburaya, but Honda especially was really worried that people would laugh at this thing if it didn't come out right. And there's a scene that's recounted in the book where they kind of pledged to one another before they went into production that we're going to take this really seriously and we're going to make this film you know, in such a way that, uh, it's about something that, you know, is really happening or as if it was really happening. We don't want anyone to laugh at this film and make fun of it because if they do, we're dead. So that's one of the, that's one of the the reasons why the attitude of the film or the point of view of the film is so deadly serious. Um, and, uh, you know, so Honda, you know, was the right choice and i'd like to think they chose him for that reason i think it's more uh uh, just a case of serendipity you know he was the right man who just happened to be available
0: um to get into the 60s just a little bit um I know uh, it's mentioned a couple times in the book and I've read it elsewhere that Gorath was, if not one of his very favorite films that he did, it was his favorite. What, what is it about that movie in particular that you think maybe held such a special place in his heart for him?
2: Uh, I would answer that by also um, pointing out that um, depending on the interview that you read and uh, at different points of time, Honda called a lot of his films his favorites, or one of his favorites, including some films that I was surprised to hear him talk, you know, so so positively about. Um, But I think Gorath kind of uh, uh, is, you know, it epitomizes this theme that runs through uh, Battle in Outer Space. And the Mysterians, especially, but but Gorath has the uh, you know is is sort of maybe the 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 grandest expression of it of all um, because it combines this theory of uh, or this theme of uh, you know man and the nations of the world uniting for a co- you know in common purpose to uh, solve a problem and it, they use science or in this case. Pseudo or pseudo pseudo science to solve that problem, and so it's kind of like, uh, you know, the the meeting of two of these great things that he really enjoyed exploring in his films.
0: Uh, I want to backtrack, um, to Honda's first movie in 1949, which was a documentary called Isis Issei Shima? Am I pronouncing yes. that right? Um, so, yeah. um, I didn't know, uh, I guess. It's notable for being Japan's first success at uh, underwater photography and in films. And Honda had spent the time developing uh, a camera for that. How um, how long did he spend developing that camera? Do you know? And what were the challenges of uh, the underwater filming?
2: Well, the challenge was that it really hadn't been done before Um, and uh, he went down to the region which actually uh, would turn out to be the same area where he would shoot uh, his first dramatic feature the blue pearl uh, two years later and then uh, three years after that he shot the Odo Island sequences in the same region so he he developed an affinity for this place and he got to know a lot of people there he got to know the culture and, um, he felt very comfortable and he thought it was a great, very scenic, be a very beautiful place to, to shoot film. Um, yeah. And, um, he wanted to go into the water and shoot these pearl driver, these pearl divers in their element, uh, to see them yeah. actually harvesting the pearls from the bottom of the bay. And there was no proven, uh, equipment, no mechanism for doing this. So he worked with, um, some uh, technical people at Toho to develop uh, essentially a housing to uh, enclose uh, what I think was essentially a newsreel camera, a smaller portable uh, film camera, and they were able to go underwater. And they used the same setup for the, the diving sequences in The Blue Pearl.
0: Well, reading through, because um, the book has it has a synopsis of uh, all of his films even outside the genre which is um which is awesome and uh a lot of the characters with that that conflict uh will sway either way depending on the movie or you know the protagonist do you know if Honda had any uh what his personal feelings on that were was he I mean he seems like a pretty progressive guy but was he open to all the changes going on or was there a little bit of him that was resistant or was it a little bit of both uh, i mean you might not know the exact answer but do you have any theories or anything if not
2: well i would just point out uh that honda himself had uh something of a non-traditional marriage well for, he had a somewhat of a non-traditional upbringing uh because even though his father was uh, uh, a holy man for lack of a better way of putting it uh he didn't uh require or even really expect his own kids to follow in his footsteps he didn't uh really even dictate uh you know what his children did and how they you know how they chose to uh you know live their lives uh, he just really encouraged them to do you know to do their best at whatever they did choose to do um And then, you know, Honda, again, you know, as we talked about before, he really chose something that was considered a non-traditional and fairly risky uh, occupation, rather than something, you know, more safe and traditional. Um, And then uh, when he got married, he had a very non-traditional sort of marriage. He didn't um, have an unarranged marriage, as was customary. And to a certain extent, still is. Um, but, um, no, he what he had instead was uh, uh, what they call is, uh, it's essentially a work match. Uh, beating some, somebody at work and falling in love with them, going right. out, maybe eventually getting married, that seems pretty normal to us. That's pretty, pretty much how <laughs> yeah. a lot of people in this country and of our generation and previous generations find their soulmates um, but not necessarily so in Japan, and it was considered somewhat unusual and um, And that's one of the reasons why uh, Kimi's parents, Honda 's wife's parents, uh, didn't support the marriage, at least at first, um, especially the father who was a more traditional kind of person and expected his wife. I mean, his daughter, sorry, to marry somebody who could essentially uh, move into the, you know, the family business and take over. But Honda wasn't that kind of a guy, he wouldn't be, have been interested in that sort of thing. And so, uh, at least at first, her father didn't support the couple and they didn't get any kind of a a dowry or, um, you know, any kind of financial support from the father when uh, when they were married, which was a big blow because they were poor. And that was something that, you know, an ordinary couple who, were, who enjoyed the blessings of the, the wife's father would uh, customarily be able to expect that kind of support. But yeah, I think he was very sympathetic to the plight of young people in post-war Tokyo. Um, and I think that comes through in his films again and again and again, uh, even though he wasn't of their generation. He was a, a, a Meiji man. Um, One of the films that I like a lot that he uh, also made before Godzilla is a film called Adolescence Part Two. Um, It's a film with a a young cast. It's about uh, high school students in this uh, similar to, you know, Hondo grew up in a mountain town and where that was cut off from the big city. Um, This is um, set in a town that's probably not unlike the one that he grew up in. And these young kids are, um, but th- they're full of ideas that they're deep into their education and they're reading, uh, philosophy and, and I, they're, um, they're, they're growing up fast and the, the parents and, and the, the older generation are kind of shocked by some of their behaviors. Um, and it's, it's a, it's a film that could probably take place anywhere in any, you know, uh, fast-changing country fast-changing culture i don't want it's it's one it's a funny thing because i i see he i sit here and i'm listening to myself and i realize that i'm kind of not trying to give too much away because i don't want to spoil it but i'm i'm not i'm trying to withhold spoilers on a film <laughs> that you guys may never get a well, yeah, to we'll, see. <laughs> we'll, we'll never
0: see yeah <laughs>
2: so, so i don't i don't know if i'm uh doing anyone a, a favor by doing this but um uh the, the the drama and it's written about in the book, so I guess I'm not spoiling anything, but the big uh conflict takes place when these two uh young kids, uh one of them is played by Akira Kubo, who's a, one of Honda's great actors, but he's extremely young in this film. He had really uh only made his uh movie debut uh shortly before this. And he looks really young and really handsome. And um and he and um one of his classmates, a the girl, they wander off into the mountains on a walk. And um, they become, I mean, at the very least, they kiss. The film is rather ambiguous as to whether or not they they go all the way or not. But it, in a way, that's not even the point of the film. They clearly have crossed um, a line that um, they're they they realize that that they've broken this taboo or and they've they've done something that is going to bring great shame to to both of them they, and it sort of uh, and the girl becomes so distraught over this that she um she almost you know it's basically like a suicide and um it, it disrupts the whole community and everything is kind of thrown into chaos by the actions of these teenagers And uh, one of them ends up having to leave, basically to restore order, uh, to basically um, leave town and go start life over again with a clean slate. Um, So it's interesting because Honda's film and and he, through the film, clearly empathize with the kids and the, the, the tremendous pressure that's put upon them to live up to these ideals that are on the one hand, outdated, and on another hand, kind of impossible to, to meet. He, he does strike a balance sometimes, but I think if, he, if you had to say on what side he comes down on uh, over and over again, I think it's on the side of the young people who are representative of, uh, you know, the new generation mm-hmm. and the mess of the future, you know.
0: So um am going to switch gears back to uh – the 60s um, and this is a question you might not know the answer to but uh, if you have any any theories or anything um, so getting into King Kong versus Godzilla it's kind of well-documented at this point how that project came to be uh, with it being the idea of King Kong versus Frankenstein from Willis O'Brien and the idea basically being stolen uh, from him by John Beck and kind of gave it to Toho to morph into King Kong versus Godzilla. Um, And, you know, O'Brien and Marion Cooper and, you know, King Kong's creators didn't get any kind of credit. I don't think any of them knew about it until it had come out. The book mentions several times the importance of the original King Kong to Tsuburaya and Honda as well as just being one Mm -hmm. of their favorite movies and something that you know just influenced their work to like the hundredth degree do you do you know or do you have any any guess that if if they even knew what had happened with john beck and willis o'brien and um, oh if, i doubt it yeah if they if, because i would imagine right and i i always kind of thought this if they did know i don't think they would have done the film
2: yeah, I, I I really doubt that they had any clue whatsoever because at the end of the day, what really happened was that Toho acquired the right to use King Kong from RKO. Yeah,
0: and then then that and caused, that's pretty
2: much what the deal was. Yeah,
0: and then that that caused I think that was like the start of how convoluted the King Kong rights got. Now, um, I Matt, do you want to go over to Matango real quick?
1: Yeah, um, so it seems like Matango is a movie that has a lot of the fingerprints from Takeshi Kimura, especially. Um, you could even consider the film kind of nihilistic, I mean, when you, when you watch it. Do you think that this is perhaps one of, maybe like a darker side of Honda? Um, like how, when, when you think of the film and you contrast it with his other works um, and then you think of maybe Takeshi Kimura's input versus Honda's input on the film, like, how would you how would you maybe explain that to people who are watching for the first time?
2: Well, I think, uh, well, the film, uh, it, you know, is adapted from the Hodgson story. Mm-hmm. I mean, and there were other writers in between. Uh, but if you, have you read the Hodgson story?
0: Uh, I have. And uh, Matt and I also, we reviewed... Um the TV adaptation from the '50s, from uh, mm-hmm. the anthology show *Suspicion*. So, between the two of us, I think we're we're fairly familiar. Well, all I'm
2: meant to bring up is that uh, even going back to the um, the source material, this uh, sort of misanthropic theme is there. Uh, I think from the very beginning, but it it's perfectly suited to. Kimura's style of writing at least the the writing that he did in the genre and and um i think honda really um he enjoyed working with both of these writers but these writers were so different just in their their outlook on the world uh there's something very innocent and uh idealistic about seki uzawa's writing uh you know there's a childlike wonder in some of his films and he was kind of um, i don't know an arrested development case uh, if you uh, read about him he was a, a kind of an eccentric guy who loved things like model trains and you know he wrote for animation he wrote uh uh pop songs and all kinds of things he's just kind of like a, a big kid um uh, in some ways at least that's the way he comes across And Kimura uh, was—I don't know—comes across as a misanthrope, and um, and his his screenplays are very dark and pessimistic. And uh, Matango, at least uh, in terms of the the films that Kimura uh, collaborated on with Honda, I think is um, you know their their one true masterpiece. But you can see some of those same um, misanthropic themes running through uh, the other films that they they worked on together. Um, and not not even, I mean you can even see it in things like Frankenstein Conquers the World and mm. or the Gargantua's, which are much less substantial films than this one. But they still have this um, this really downbeat and um, pessimistic view of of the subject matter, but I remember this film used to, p- to play on television all the time and it was uh, called Attack of the Mushroom People yeah. back then. I remember unfortunate title. As I'm talking about this, I started to think about, you know, one of the, our primary motivations for writing this book was to kind of write some of the wrongs that have been done to Honda and his reputation. Uh, as a filmmaker and one of those things that has been most damaging is just the way his films have been uh, marketed overseas
0: yeah
2: Uh, that film in particular you know it never got a theatrical release uh, in the united states but it was um you know when it played on television it was uh, just this typical B movie that would run on the million dollar movie or some creature feature program with this horrific title this this ridiculous title and a title like that will completely uh, change or, or skew the audience's expectations and their, their understanding of, of what it is. It's, you know, I, I, I don't think anybody in this country ever seriously took it as a psychological thriller until many years later and now we have Steven Soderbergh you know, expressing interest in wanting to remake it which I think is wonderful. I, th- I actually do think once you get an opportunity to see it uh, you know, in scope, in, in the way the film at least through your television uh, and I've seen it theatrically a couple of times since then too but um, when, when you start to see this film and many of these films in the way they were originally intended to be presented, I think they're far more powerful.
1: So I want to switch gears for a minute and I want to talk about the relationship between Honda, who's obviously a known pacifist, and then uh, Kira Fukube, who is a known nationalist. Um, What was the relationship between them like? And take a film like maybe Atragon, where you have uh, the captain of that film who's uh, a nationalist and kind of comes to terms with the fact that he has to use the weapon to defend Instead of just for Japan, he has to take it to defend the world against a threat. Would that be maybe a source of contention between the two? Um, that's always kind of an interesting film when you think about nationalism versus pacifism
2: yeah, uh, I don't know that they had any conflict. you know Eric Hominick is is uh, writing this wonderful ongoing biography of Yve Kube, and uh, he's uncovered all this great information about the man's life and his and his politics are, are a huge and interesting part of that.
0: Yeah, we had um, him on the show, and uh, he had a lot of interesting stuff uh, to say about that, too.
2: It's interesting because Ifukube's music, on its surface, is, you know, it does stir um, those kind of emotions. It does has the, have this martial, uh, nationalistic kind of uh, uh, flair to it. Um, and, and it, you know that's a one reason why. I, I mean, this question has come up occasionally as to whether Honda himself was some sort of nationalist. And one of the things that people point to when they bring that up is the music in the films and these army rollouts with the this uh, stirring music underneath them. But I, I, the question I always ask is. Other than the fact that the army is responding to a crisis, what in the film, uh, you know, causes you to think that there is some sort of nationalistic intent? Whereas you look at something like Atragon, which actually brings up the theme of nationalism and questions it and puts it into a um, a context that uh, was... Um, you know, very current at the time. It was a ref- reflective of actual events and things that um, were in the news at the time. But um, something like, um, I don't know, War of the Gargantuas, or, you know, you have this the typical scene of the army uh, confronting the threat and you have this great music, but there's no political dialogue. There's no discussion of, you know, defense policy or the role of the military or any. Uh, any kind of political position taken by the film it's just a a depiction of the army (laughs) responding to a crisis Um, so i don't see those as um, nationalistic films uh, and certainly honda's politics were uh, not pro-war or or pro-military although he had you know a great affinity for the military but that's um, that's a different matter. Uh, Atragon was made at a time when uh, the, the stories of these uh, military stragglers were coming up in the news. Um, and, and they would continue to uh, be reported for several years. Um, and so the character of Jinguji and the other people living on that island with him, the other uh, uh, naval uh, officers... Excuse me. Uh, the other people, uh, those are all reflective of an actual uh, uh, series of stories of these men who were uh, left behind at the end of the war. Some of them were mistakenly left behind. They were forgotten. Some people refused to go back because they they didn't want to face a defeated Japan. They couldn't face the the reality of defeat. Some of them didn't believe it or they refused to accept it. And some of these men uh, stayed on these islands and had no idea that the war was over. And they continued to prepare themselves for uh, an enemy invasion. Uh, they would continue to speak in, uh, you know, in their military dialogue, and they would continue to wear their, their military uniforms and practice their drills. And, and, um, and so some of these people started to be uh, finally discovered and brought home. Uh, late 50s early 60s and we've seen stories uh uh that they continued to come home well into the 1970s as old men or middle-aged men and so that's what this uh that's what this film is based upon at least you know as an inspiration for the story and um the character of Jinguji uh has been living uh in this this denial for so long he's actually you know uh Sur- uh, sacrificed his family and his his entire life for this lost cause
1: i think Astrogon i mean is if anything is basically an indictment of nationalism i don't think you could see it any other way I think
3: well it is
2: it is an indictment of nationalism or of this resurgent nationalism. The other thing I wanted to bring up is um around this time uh when the film came out there was uh there were a number of intellectuals, uh, Yukio Mishima, and other people, who were starting to um, revisit the topic of the war and to write about it and and talk about it in a more favorable way. You know, it was kind of there was a little bit of um, revisionist history or or nationalist revisionism going on, where people started to uh, look back at the war as something positive that Japan's role in Asia was uh To liberate uh, the Asian countries from the western imperialists and um and so th- then then there was a backlash against uh against that, so the film you know was not made in a vacuum; it was made in this climate where you had both these these people who are coming home after many years and reminding the uh, the the general populace of the war. Uh, revisiting the war narrative at a time when people were starting to put that sort of thing in, in the rearview mirror. Again, Japan was becoming more prosperous. Um, the years of uh, the post-war malaise and the occupation were becoming further and further behind. And uh, and and there was the Olympics just around the corner, which was a big turning point for Japan after the war. Uh, that was a big uh, cause of a big infusion of of development and um, and growth, uh, Tokyo got a complete makeover uh, in uh, the years running up to the Olympics, and that uh, generated huge uh, economic development. And um, so these were reminders of the war. There was these were reminders of something that, even though it was only less than two decades ago at this time, those that, that was another time. That was ancient history and um, so the film is about you know reckoning with the past and also understanding that uh, japan's place in the world has changed fundamentally uh and uh, you know honda being uh, an optimist had always you know there there's this theme running throughout m- a number of his films uh gorath uh the mysterians battle in outer space just a couple of examples this theme of international unity and harmony and p- you know, um nations that are uh adversaries, cold war enemies coming together to for the greater good of of mankind and solving a problem together and um and that theme is one of optimism. Is it one of your favorite films oh yeah, I, I love that
0: film yeah, pretty much I, I, mean, I yeah me too. It's one of my favorites um
2: the performance by um uh, tazaki is is great. Um, the science fiction or fantasy elements, science fiction elements of the film are fantastic and it has this this great ending where the warrior uh allows the the queen of Mu uh to basically die with her people and uh to, to die, you know, a respectful death. And um there's there's some um, that's a poignant ending and also has the glorious effects at sea. It's,
1: I've heard people talk about Atragon as if it were like uh, pro-nationalism. I'm like, have you
2: seen the movie? I don't... Anyway, uh, Well, uh, it, it's about nationalism, but it, I don't think it really comes down on the side of, of Jinguji. And he has people in the film confronting Jinguji about the lives that, you know, he's destroyed his family. He has the, the great con- confrontation scene with, with his daughter. It's one of the uh, few i think truly moving and emotional scenes in in some of these films And the, one of the the things that's um so different about Honda's science fiction films other than you know a few examples here and there, Godzilla being one of the the big examples and um and most obvious, but Atragon as well but you know there's not a lot of room for uh Character development. There's not a lot of room for emotion in some of these films because they're so action-packed and they're so driven by the spectacle. And um, that's one of the films that's I think got some truly moving moments in it, and it's all driven by this conflict. And the other thing that's interesting about that film is that the uh, the Mu Empire is essentially a facsimile of a, of Imperial Japan, um, and you know it's defeated by its own hubris its own, uh, you know, reckless ambition. So, you know, I think to, it's, it's interesting that someone would say that. I'm not sure exactly where they're getting that from, but I think it's a little bit of a misinterpretation.
1: There's been some debate. Um, actually I had this conversation with a few people on, on like Facebook and stuff, but um take something like shin godzilla people talk about being very grounded and being maybe the most grounded godzilla film since the original and they and i've heard people even say that it, it's invoked honda's work and i know that ed at g-fest uh, basically said no it had the opposite uh, viewpoint of honda um do you have any thoughts about that i mean there's there's a lot of stuff in shin that we could go into
2: well, what do you what do you mean by say when you say that it's the most grounded film since the first one? Grounded in in what?
1: Well, I think you know, grounded meetings. In... <laughs> 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 well, there's, there's that for sure. Um, I mean, there's there's obviously the, the politics um, of of the film. For, for a lot of people, I heard them say it was the most. I don't know. Godzilla was very realistic, um, which. Uh. Was not. But
3: I, well, I think a lot of it has to do with
2: maybe the, the government mean, acts. That I think kind of what what you uh, know, I'm not going to speak for Ed, but I I would assume, and I think you know he might take issue with the political stance that's expressed by the film, which is one uh, that questions uh, the current limitations on Japan's military power, and uh, and these are real you know concerns expressed by. Uh, the current prime minister of Japan and people who support his viewpoint—the uh, idea that the the constitution that was drafted by um, the Americans during the occupation pace, places limitations on Japan's military um, uh, capabilities that don't suit the modern world and don't uh, aren't uh, realistic in in the modern situation where you've got. Uh, Japan kind of uh, situated between uh, North Korea, which is, you know, spewing bellicose rhetoric and Donald Trump spewing it right back and they have nuclear missiles and they're trying to, uh, you know, miniaturize hydrogen bomb or or thermonuclear warheads that, uh, and put them on missiles that can reach LA, and they're flying them over Japan. And you know, there's uh, there's very real concerns there that this um, Article Nine of the the Constitution is placing limitations on Japan's ability to, uh, you know, to practice military self determination. Um, but at the same time, I mean, there's great concern among Japan's. Neighbors in the region that if Japan were to have more of a proactive military, a more independent military that wasn't uh, you know uh, uh, dependent upon the United States for its first line of defense, then Japan might revert to its old ways and become an aggressor and start marching across across China or across you know the region again so it's an interesting debate, but um I'm not so uh offended by that particular aspect. It's really interesting because you you've got Anno, who is this um who's one of the, the the major figures in in anime uh and sort of revolutionized or you know changed the whole mecha anime genre and is really you know known as an auteur in that uh genre and You know, if you give the Godzilla franchise, if you give the Godzilla brand to a filmmaker like that, uh, you can't expect that person to just do the same thing that has been done over and over again. I think that's unrealistic.
3: Mm -hmm. I think,
2: any, you know, just like Kaneko, when when they gave it to him, he tried, even though his approach was more, I think, traditional in some ways, um, but he did try to put his own stamp on it. And the stamp was, in my opinion, a little too similar to the films he had made previously uh, with Gamera, which were superior. But, um, uh, but, Anno, uh, you know, made his own film. I mean, it's a di- much different type of Godzilla film. And I think that's one of the thing that's, things that sort of uh, confounds some people about it is that it defies expectations because it's not like... It's almost like, um, you know, in some ways, like the the Emmerich film, (laughs) even though it's totally different from that, but they're both similar in that they're both Godzilla films made by people who didn't really want to make a traditional Godzilla film at all.
0: yeah.
2: They took the Godzilla name and the formula and they kind of just did with it what they wanted to do. And in this case... You know, one of the things that I think is similar between Shin Godzilla and Godzilla 54, or at least it's a common uh, through line, is they're very m- much about uh, the experiences of people in Japan who went through a traumatic, catastrophic, catastrophic event. The thing about this film, though, is, um, you know, he it's it's the approach of it is that is both at one point, at, at one t- It's at once fascinating and interesting, and yet it's exhausting and trying. (laughs) You know, I mean, it's really kind of cool, and uh, you know, to try something really new with something very old. And um, when Godzilla finally shows up, I mean, it just looks weird. Uh, It doesn't. It's not that I, I. I really don't. I'm not one of those purists who, you know, I don't really get bent out of shape when. Godzilla's design changes, you know, from film to film. Um I could have even lived with the Emric design if the film were more like, you know, more respectful of this the the legacy that preceded it. <laughs>
0: thank you. I say that all the time and Matt yells at me, but <laughs>
1: not thank Listen, you. Listen, I cannot I cannot get on with that design ever. I'm sorry.
2: <laughs> well, you know, to each his own, but I'm not, you know, at this point in my life, I care less about what the monster look like looks like then um what the story is, and whether or not you know the writing is good and and it makes sense and and let's face it, there's a legacy here, and I think it has to be fairly respected, but even within that you know you have you know you have artistic freedom as the director of any given film in this series you you do have you know some leeway there, but in any case. Um, when Godzilla shows up, it looks like, you know, he stood too close to the the grill at an outdoor backyard <laughs> <Yeah>. barbecue. <laughs> and, you know, it's just, the proportions are very strange. And, you know, it's enormous. And they, they went to great lengths to make it seem gigantic. But yet, is the tail bigger than Godzilla itself? There's all kinds of strange things going on there. But the, the main thing is, for a god incarnate it just seems like this big sloth that moves very slowly and isn't very um you know uh, godlike or intimidating but then again there's this great sequence you know the 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 um the military response uh you know is gradual and it's very dramatic and it builds up to that, that great um, sequence where the B-2s uh, drop their payload on it. Mm-hmm. And Godzilla responds with this massive counterattack that just blows the city all to hell. And I thought that was, you know, really great stuff. That was something new that we hadn't really seen quite in that way that's, before. Yeah, that's
0: that's my favorite part of the movie, actually. Yeah,
2: yeah no, Shin Godzilla is an interesting one. It's definitely uh, something that people, uh, you know like to argue about (laughs) i think it's interesting that some people find it offensive when you bring up the the japanese politics that are going on in the film and you i mean i think it's a little too simplistic to say it's an a nationalist film or something like that i mean there is this um abe uh government policy uh, which is you know they labeled soft nationalism and there are things that some of the characters in the film say that are, you know, uh, basically uh, not quotes, not direct quotes, but they're, they are very similar to some of these uh, uh, soft nationalisms that uh, the the government has encouraged, you know, young people to espouse.
0: To, to Matt's point about people comparing it to, to Honda's work and to Ed's point about saying, you know, it's, not really the kind of message Hondo would probably endorse i think I think the reason that's become such a hot debate is the fan- people that really like Shin Godzilla get very like you said, Steve, like they get kind of defensive when the the Japanese politics angle is brought up, and um I, but as I, if
2: that's a bad thing you're right reality. right yeah I, I, I don't I mean, really understand why that anyone should be uncomfortable with that yeah, I mean and, it's just. It's just I, part of the film. It's one. Yeah,
0: I I think aspect of it. I think they imme- their brains immediately go back to the Honda classics and like attempt to like you you were saying about you know wh- when people bring it up in terms of the milit like the military marches. I think they're kind of grasping at things that they can say. Well, see the old thing did it, so that means oh. it's okay for this thing to do it. But when instead they should just be able to say like this movie takes a little bit of a different viewpoint, and, I mean, it's okay to say, like, hey, it's a more nationalistic Godzilla movie, but I like it anyway. Like, I mean, I don't... People seem insecure with being able to say that for whatever reason, I think. Yeah. So, uh, let's get into Honda in the 70s. Now, here's another question you might not know the answer to, uh, but it's something I've read. A couple different accounts for and that's honda uh his visits to the set of godzilla versus hedera um, yeah. i've heard uh, and and i remember steve we we'd talked we've talked before and you said if you couldn't find anything that you could you know check as 100% fact you left it out of the book so feel free to theorize here um yeah. but i i would heard s- other sources say that uh it's i mean it's well known that tanaka was uh sick and um, and that's why Honda was making some of these visits. But uh, I had heard rumors that um, when Tanaka had hated Godzilla versus the Smog Monster, that it kind of soured his relationship with Honda. Is that something you have any theories on? Or, uh, I mean, does that sound like someone's just being sensationalistic?
2: Yeah, that sounds like... Uh... Well, then why would Tanaka bring Honda back to the series after that if he if he didn't um, you know if Honda had fallen out of favor?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, I, I I think that that I don't know where that's coming from and whether it's based on anything true. I mean, Honda's role in terms of Godzilla versus versus Hedra was he basically did uh, Bono a favor and uh, helped him get a little extra uh, scheduling time to finish the film um but um you know he he didn't uh you know provide any sort of real guidance toward okay. the making of the yeah film. I, i've
0: some people uh, again this is just like how things morph over time into i guess mm-hmm. lore or uh, urban legend so some people even say that he honda directed a couple sequences but i, no, I yeah i i'm imagining special. you yeah you weren't able to find any evidence or documentation of that i would
2: think no no there's nothing and uh you know i'd really like to know where that comes from but um most likely it's people you know imagining things or, or reading more into something that's not really there
1: um obviously honda worked on stuff like return of Ultraman, man mirror man um how do you how did you like working on tv projects as, a, as opposed to films
2: I don't think he liked it very much, or he might have done more of it. Um, As far as those special effects shows are concerned, um, he was often doing those because he was asked to do them. Yeah, it it
0: seemed like stuff like Zone Fighter and Return of Ultraman were kind of almost favors.
2: Yeah, they were favors, yeah. I mean, it was a way of, you know... I mean, he was basically retired by that point. He had his contract... uh, uh, he, when it came up for renewal, he he basically just bowed out. He didn't like the way the the uh, the movie business had deteriorated by that point. He didn't like the the conditions under which he was having to make films. Um, although I would say, you know, one of his last films was All Monsters Attack, and even though it's totally stripped down and um, it's a much smaller type of production, I really like what he was able to do with that, and I think that film you know, people always kind of sneer at me when I say this, but I mean, it's a far better film than people give it credit for. Uh, I
0: think, yeah, I think we would agree. We did a whole, uh, we did our own audio commentary for the podcast, oh, where we kind of said the same thing. I mean, I, I think it's got its issues. And at the end, I don't think everything quite comes together. But I, I definitely don't think it's what people say it is. Well, and I, I was a sab- matter- um, i was i a was interested right and and it was interesting to see in your book that honda even considered it one of his better godzilla movies yeah
2: yeah well it's it's well directed and well thought out um you know obviously it's a film that was made uh sort of structured in such a way as it could be made for a minimal cost but um but even given all that i mean it's a uh, it's a great concept it's a meta film you know it's a film about a kid who watches these monster movies he knows godzilla and rodan and all these things from the films that he's watched which are the same films that the audience has watched which Mm -hmm. is why if you're sitting in the audience in you know in the theater in japan at that time you you it makes sense that you would recognize those clips because you've seen the same films that ichiro has
1: do you know if Honda saw any American versions or edits of his films and if he did uh, what he thought of them? Uh,
2: I don't think he did. Um, you know, it's, he never talked about the... Um, I wish somebody had asked him point blank. And maybe it w- would have been considered rude to do so. But, you know, uh, they released uh, Godzilla King of the Monsters in Japan um, in uh, the late 50s. And um, I got to think that he must have seen it, right? How could he not have been curious?
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: You know, and um, nobody seemed to know if he had ever seen it. And uh, he certainly never wrote about it. And he, um, you know, it seems like such an obvious question, but in all the, the published interviews that we found of... Yeah, nobody asked that question, which is very strange.
0: Are there any um? Are there any of the American edits that you actually prefer to the Japanese uh, original? Uh,
2: yeah, King Kong versus Godzilla is genius. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I love it. It's awesome.
1: Don't, don't hate Tom, me. I, I get a kick out of King Kong the American version of that movie. I really
2: do. <laughs> Most power terrible. to you. You know, I mean, I I. You know, it's kind of a quandary or um, it's an interesting conundrum because, well, I I think actually the way that uh, the first film was re-edited was, you know, just if I just look at it objectively, I think it's really clever, you know, the way that they were able to take this Japanese film and totally disguise it as, um, you know, an American film. And, um, you know, even though mm-hmm. Raymond Burr doesn't really have a, you know, a, a role in the drama, he doesn't really propel any of the action. He's just observing everything. It's done and it's written and his performance is is just good enough to make you mm-hmm. believe that he is the main character. And that's yeah,
0: it's, it's a, I, yeah I, I like it too. For me, the only one... Well, like there's some where I really like the, I mean, I, like there's the the good one, the ones with the good dubs, like Godzilla vs. the oh. Thing. Um, but you know, I still usually watch the Japanese version, but I I love the sure. US one too. Um, same with like like Monster Zero, I usually use the dub because I love Nick Adams' performance. Gargantua's, I actually prefer it without the Frankenstein connection. So that's another one. I think the only one I actually prefer. The U.S. edit to is probably the Mysterians. I just find that it quickens the pace and kind of quickens
2: the pace, and also the the there's uh, you can hear the music more prominently, which is really great. It's a great soundtrack. Yeah,
0: Mysterians is probably the only one where I would say like I prefer the U.S. edit to the original. Other than that, I typically go for the uh, the original versions.
2: Sure, but you know uh, you know I'm from a generation right before you i think i'm a little bit older than you guys but you know it's kind of an interesting question to ask me because back in the day we didn't have that choice yeah (laughs) so it's hard for me to say you know i like you know in air quotes again one more than the other i i of course now that i have the the good fortune to be able to see all the films in their original uh versions and i can view them you know the way honda at least you know they, they, they originally intended to be projected in 35 on a big screen so when you're watching them on your your 1080p tv with a blu-ray that's you know been remastered um you know you're probably seeing the film even more clearly than it was projected back you know in the day and in, uh, in a movie house but um I so if I like an American version more than a Japanese version of any of these films, it's probably due in large part to the nostalgia factor. Yeah. Like I love the um the American dub, the Tetra studio's dub of destroy all monsters. Mm-hmm. I mean who doesn't? Everybody likes that one. I like all too.
0: all their dubs I actually find yeah, like sure. very,
2: really good. But that that film in particular, you know, it's it's almost exactly the same you know between the japanese and american cuts it's not substantially different so and, and you know some i've gotten to the point where if i don't if i'm watching one of these films and the actual actor's voice isn't coming out of their mouths it's a little disturbing you know i'd prefer much i much prefer to you know to watch it with subtitles but that's a film i can uh y- you know if i could if we had a really good release with that dub on it i know there's probably some bootleg versions out there that are pretty good the one that um uh, media blasters put out uh they kind of botched the um the sinking of the, the the teacher dub yeah but i'm still glad to have it you know yeah yeah pretty close but again that's like one rare example where i think it is superior the guy's voice on the japanese soundtrack isn't nearly as compelling you know it, mm-hmm. that that narration at the beginning of the film in the AIP version is freaking fantastic
0: going into the 80s uh i mean at this point honda's pretty much retired uh but you do mention in the book that if he hadn't uh reconnected with kurosawa he probably would have done what i think godzilla resurrected or godzilla reborn one of the movies that they were batting around that never got made um yeah
2: i don't you know i i don't know it, it's it's an, again impossible to know what would have happened if yeah. things had mm-hmm. gone a different way but he was attached in the press to a project uh around 1980 uh there were press reports where he was quoted uh talking about how you know we'd lost our way with the Godzilla series and now we're going to bring it back to its roots I'm paraphrasing. Um, I mean, who knows if he even actually said those things, they may mm-hmm. have just written a, a press release and attributed those quotes to him and, you know, maybe asked him if that was okay. I think, um, it's possible. I don't know for sure, but it's possible that the studio was floating his name because at that point they were judging interest from distributors and trying to, you know, gauge the market. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and they surely knew that if the film had his name attached to it as the director of the original film, that would have had some some value. Um, it's hard to know though that if he really you know whether or not he really would have returned to direct another Godzilla film um, at that point in his life, because his life had really changed by that point. And um, the offer from Kurosawa to join his uh, production team kind of came out of the blue but it was more than just hey do you need a job it was a rather unprecedented invitation to be kurosawa's right-hand man and with that invitation uh you know there was implied this tremendous amount of trust between these two guys Mm -hmm. because they're extremely close friends i mean kurosawa being kurosawa would you know probably would never have asked anybody but honda to do this to have such a a close role and to stand so close to the director's chair and to offer such close uh, advice and if you think about it i mean i really can't i don't know if there exists another partnership like this in the history of cinema is there another uh, director of this kind of stature who asked another director who's internationally renowned to come and work with him and that director having already had his own career and his own body of work actually accepts yeah invitation so this is great humility being expressed on both sides of this uh transaction if you want to call it that yeah If if you so it's it's really kind of a profound thing that they they decided to do together and um And so, and then Honda, you know, having, you know, both Kurosawa and Honda had had, you know, major career uh, setbacks and, uh, you know, at that point, both of them had struggled to work uh, with American producers. And that's one of the, you know, one of the things about the book is not just about the the friendship and the partnership between Honda and Kurosawa, but it also draws this sort of parallel between their different paths. And one of the things that's interesting to compare and contrast, I think, is the way Kurosawa broke free, broke away from the studio system, and then tried to go outside of Japan and and seek uh, funding and backing from Hollywood for his productions because he was becoming more and more ambitious, and um, he wanted more and more creative freedom. They went through through, um, their ups and downs and uh both of them in the mid 70s you know by that point kurosawa had to go entirely outside the japanese system again he went to russia to get
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh, funding for Derzu, and um so uh you know this was a way of kind of going back to the beginnings you know that when they when they joined forces it was part friendship part professional and they were really kind of reaching back to their youth the time uh when they really enjoyed Making films, you know, you know, in an environment that was supportive and uh, and the creative juices were flowing, and they inspired one another, and they they both, you know, went back to work with uh, you know a tremendous burst of energy, and they had this really productive decade in the nineteen eighties and and uh, you know in the early nineties. Um, but I don't know if Honda would have returned to the Godzilla series. I know, you know, that th- he was asked or at least invited to make the film that became Godzilla 84 and he right, turned it right. That's because he was already, you know, in the midst of, of working with the Kurosawa productions by then. And he was very happy doing that. Um, if, if the offer had come a, a few years earlier, who knows? Who knows?
0: Um, another thing, uh, maybe this is something you can theorize because... Uh since it's not in the book, I'm just assuming you couldn't get any 100% confirmation, but um, a few other uh, articles and publications I've come across, um, well, in the 80s, Toho made their own version of uh, Princess from the Moon by uh, yeah. Kan Ichikawa, and um, I'd heard that that was uh, a, a, a gig that Honda had applied for, or had a pitch for, and for whatever reason, it, it they, they didn't do it, and they... they the ichikawa film instead is that something you have any ideas on or maybe came across a mention here or there at all
3: no
2: i i've heard that too but i didn't see anything uh conclusive on that uh honda did mention that he was approached uh for a possible reboot of the, the majin series around that time mm-hmm. and he wasn't interested in doing that either so uh uh, my i strongly suspect that uh, there were a number of offers or at least ideas that were floated to him but um no we didn't really engage in um you know f- uh in documenting rumors and things like that in the book i was i wasn't really interested yeah. in doing that i don't think ed was either there's a lot of rumors uh that have been generated around this genre you know and you you can go crazy trying to track all of them down um i think maybe somebody should write a book about those (laughs) i'll (laughs) I'll, I'll read that i
1: know one of them was actually about uh mechagodzilla 93 that he was approached to direct
2: yeah i I doubt it
3: yeah i really doubt
2: (laughs) it. i mean you know again somebody might have you know said hey i wonder if honda would want to do this Um, I don't know. I mean, he died in the beginning of 93, so I'm not sure exactly when that would have, um, happened, but, um, uh, you know, again, it's possible that somebody was interested in working with him. That doesn't mean that he was interested with him,
3: you know, that kind of thing.
1: Um, last couple questions for you as we're wrapping this up. What was the extent of Honda's involvement in the final run of Kurosawa's films?
2: What was the extent of his involvement? I, I, uh, I, I, are you asking what his role was? Yeah. Uh, yeah,
0: like, yeah but, because well, it's an interesting cause, question. Cause because his, the his, credit kind of changes from movie right. to movie. Right. And I think
2: that's because it was really hard to put a label on what he was doing. Uh, there's a, a, a an anecdote that's relayed in the book. And uh, mm-hmm. it has to do with a journalist calling Honda mm-hmm. and his wife told us this story, and it stuck in her mind because she, you know, would rarely see her husband get angry or, you know, be uh, short with anybody, but somebody called him up, uh, I think it was a foreign journalist, if I recall, and asked him, you know, uh, why are you working with Kurosawa, you know, um, what's your role, and, you know, why the heck are you taking a, you know, what appears to be a subordinate role to another director, and he, he got frustrated trying to explain it and he said something like, you know, no one can understand and I think he just hung up on the guy. But um, the thing is he was you know, people assume that some people assume he was just an assistant director, but no, he was more than that. He was uh, an extra set of, he he was Kurosawa's eyes and ears as it has been explained by some people. uh, Partly because Kurosawa, at that point in time, his eyes and ears were starting to fail. And sometimes he needed another set of eyes and another set of ears. But he he also was um, a person whose opinion was constantly consulted and valued. Um, He was there through all phases of the production. He was consulted during the script phase and the production planning phase. And then he was actually there while these films were being shot. And sometimes, yes, he did direct second unit shooting, but that's only one part of what he did. And so, um, you know, to call him an assistant director is an understatement. To call him a co-director, though, is an overstatement. Some Mm -hmm. people have also read into this that he co-directed some of these films. And I think, you know, sometimes um, things show up on the IMDb that – (laughs)
3: <laughs> Our little
2: sister. Right.
0: Well, yeah. Um, that, that's I, we were gonna ask because wh- another one is dreams. Like s- that's an anthology right. film. Some people say that he directed whole segments of it.
2: Right, and that's not exactly right. Um, you know, Kurosawa was the director. But what, what you know, what I think is happening there is that, uh, in particular, the the tunnel sequence in dreams is something that I think it's really. Easy to infer that Honda directed that. Uh, I think the Mount because, what is
0: it, Mount Fuji in red? That's another one that.
2: Sure, but yeah. the 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 tunnel sequence. I mean, if yeah, I know, I know you've read the book, but there's a an anecdote that pops up several times in the book about Honda's dream about his uh, his friends, uh, you know, his fellow soldiers who were killed in action. And he being a you know waking up in the middle of the night, having this nightmare of, of seeing all of his friends, you know uh, the way his wife described it, that they're all standing on a line, well, you know he ended up writing a treatment for a story that he was never never able to film about uh, a dead soldier, the spirit of a dead soldier returning to Japan after the war, and isn't that essentially what? the tunnel sequence is about
0: oh yeah, yeah.
2: and the, you know the, the 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 movie dreams is purportedly about kurosawa's dreams you know that he turned into these vignettes kurosawa never served in the war but he had heard honda's story about this dream you know over the years and um and the 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 tunnel sequence is clearly um, something that is inspired by Honda's experience, not by Kurosawa's own experience. But, uh, you know, no, Honda didn't direct it or co-direct it, but he did, you know, one of the things that he did on that particular film was, uh, you know, he lent credibility to, to that uh, sequence. I mean, Kurosawa never having served in the military, uh, he left it to Honda to direct the, the actors portraying the soldiers, and to make sure that they, you know, they, they walked correctly, they marched correctly, they they knew how to 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 stand in formation, how to hold their weapons, that kind of thing. Um, he brought a great deal of authenticity to it. And you know, Honda was in a a place where other people on Kurosawa's crew, um, you know, he was uh, he was able to tell Kurosawa things and to. Uh, confide in kurosawa and to speak to kurosawa more directly than anybody else if he thought something was wrong and that needed to be corrected he he didn't you know fear the wrath of the emperor you know he he was able to go to kurosawa and tell him things straight up well, other people you know weren't in a, in a position to do that and might have felt intimidated to do that the other thing that's interesting and there are a couple of uh, uh anecdotes about this in the book Is that, you know, Kurosawa being uh, as volatile as he was would often blow up on the set or on location. Uh, There's one story related related in the book where he just took off and left everybody standing there. And Honda was uh, kind of like the buffer, he was able to diffuse tensions uh, between Kurosawa and the crew or cast or, you know, whatever the case may be. So um he had a position that was rather unique and probably because of his personality being so even-keeled and his uh ability to tolerate and uh temper Kurosawa's own personality uh he was kind of uniquely qualified or able to to deal with him and um so yeah it's one of those unique uh relationships and um uh, I, I, wish, I, I, mean, I, I wish I could think of another example of another two directors in history uh, who've done something similar, but I can't. Yeah. I think it's a unique uh, situation.
0: Um, another one of their collaborations uh, that I wanted to bring up was Rhapsody in August, which is the one they did right. with, with Richard Gere. Um, and, uh, I've seen the movie. It's, it's not one of my favorites, but I, I think always kind of thought the you know the point behind the movie was pretty clear um but as you notate in the book it it was kind of uh controversial or seen as offensive to to western viewers and was a pretty misunderstood movie i think it the movie kind of makes its point pretty clear why do you think that's something that kind of um didn't i guess translate well uh over here
2: well, it was during the uh the reagan administration and um, uh that was kind of um, you know it, it's a different time well I, don't, I think we're entering the same kind of period now. I don't know the political climate is kind of uh retrograde at the moment, but um you know the the you know to express any openly any um questioning of the atomic bombing and whether or not it was the right decision and whether or not japan you know got what it deserved i think you know at that time uh people st- you know were still reacting to that rather negatively uh i think we've come a little bit uh you know we we've progressed a little bit in the way we discuss the atomic bomb uh since then but you know it's still a sore point i think you know people still don't want to confront the horror of you know what was unleashed upon japan and the fact that we unleashed it and that it caused a great many unnecessary deaths you know um people still discuss those events as if they were done you know they were necessary action to save american lives that's the way it's it tends to be framed a lot of the time even now and um you know and so i think that you know some of the critics who responded that way were you know that their thinking was um you know they they weren't ready to to think about it in a different way and uh certainly not interested in uh uh entertaining the the japanese point of view i guess
0: yeah um yeah that that's definitely true uh but that's actually i mean for guys as old as uh him and kurosawa to be cranking out movies as good as they were um it's pretty impressive i mean ron is probably my favorite out of that bunch but i mean Mm -hmm. they're yeah they're they're all good and um and I, I mean, for you Honda- know, uh,
2: it's just funny that you brought that up because that you know a few years ago, when Obama went to Hiroshima, and he was accused of apologizing for right. the atomic bombing, you know okay. <laughs> just by the mere fact that he was acknowledging that it happened, basically
3: no. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so that's I think, you know the underlying reason for those kinds of reactions to mm-hmm. a film like. And it's a beautiful little film. It's yeah, and you know you have Richard Gere. That's that's why I was bringing up Obama and his visit to Hiroshima. Uh, there's the scene where uh, Richard Gere actually goes to the um, the the monument, right? Uh, and I think that was one of the, the parts of the film that that upset people to see an American doing that and actually uh, acknowledging this this event in world history.
0: And Honda did direct the scene with the ants, uh, right? Which is like a scene I think everyone remembers.
2: Yeah, it's a scene everyone remembers, and it's funny because there were a lot of things that Kurosawa had Honda direct over the period of those five films, sometimes because Kurosawa was ill, but in this case, or sometimes because, you know, he of scheduling things, but um, in the case of the ants, uh, the explanation was that he just didn't have the patience to do it the film so. won't chance <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, but yeah, no it's it's a it's a really neat string of movies and uh, I mean, for guys that old, it's impressive and uh and I think it would probably it was probably cool for Honda to get to you know um like uh work in some capacity with uh, you know Lucas and Coppola and Kagemusha sure. and you know, of course, Scorsese on Dreams and uh, Spielberg with um, Dreams as well. Uh, and, you know, those are guys that grew up on Honda's movies as well, you know. so Right,
2: right. You know, and it's interesting um, when we were doing interviews in Japan with different people, uh, particularly the people who, um, who had worked on the Kurosawa films, uh, Mr. Kumada, uh, for instance, um this story about Martin Scorsese kept coming up. And um and you know, it was clearly was an event that everybody remembered that you know, after the filming of the, the Van Gogh sequences um after they wrapped uh Scorsese came over and um and specifically asked if he could meet Honda and take a picture with him, and that he had told Honda uh that, you know. Well, there were different versions of the quote, but essentially that, you know, you were one of the reasons or the reason why I wanted to work on this film. Um, but anyway, uh, whether or not that's accurate and true, clearly he he was thrilled to meet Honda and um, was, you know, made a specific point of coming over to him. And we kept hearing that they had taken a picture together and um, I was very pleased uh, I mean, one thing that people always ask me um, when we're talking about this book is, how did you get Scorsese to write a forward? And my answer is, I asked him. <laughs> and he said yes. Uh, I didn't ask him directly, but I was able to find. He's actually quite accessible and he does, you know, he's done things like this for other projects. He's done intros for some pretty. Uh, obscure films that have come out on home video and he's written he's written pieces like this in other books so um but that wasn't even you know why i approached his office i found uh, i think an email address or a phone number for sicalia productions in new york yeah at first i was trying to find quotes from filmmakers like scorsese and john carpenter and i approached uh, george george lucas's office and some others just trying to get like quotes about honda to put on the website and maybe eventually to put on the back of our book jacket and um, Scorsese's people had a you know an interest in the book. Um, they actually uh, were kind of curious as to what we were doing, and um, they eventually asked to see the manuscript, and uh, he contributed the blurb that you see in the book, but um, it wasn't originally intended to be. The foreword. It's we I we just originally asked for like a a short quote about Honda, like what do you like about him or something like that. And he what he submitted was was far longer. And so um we went back and asked if it would be okay to use it as the foreword and they said yes.
0: That's awesome. So that's how that, I'm a big fan of his as well. I think he's Of course. Yeah, I think he's one of the best living directors. But but yeah, that's awesome.
2: Yeah, no, uh Honda, you know, I think making those films uh, was in a much better place, you know, having worked in the studio system and being very dedicated to the studio system, very comfortable working in it. And and so he did feel a sense of loyalty to it. But then when he finally was freed from those confines and uh, he and Kurosawa were essentially working independently, um, they were making films on their own terms. And I think that's why uh, they were able to do that. You know, they were had this burst of energy, you know, both men uh, getting well up in years and um, they made some really good films. I mean, it's interesting. Everyone points to Ron because it's uh, quite an epic. But, um, you know, I I have my own favorites out of that time period. I mean, I like all of the films. Of course I do. But um, what is your favorite? uh, I actually like Rhapsody in August more than you do. I, I really enjoy it and I think it you know it's a very personal film and I find it quite moving and um and I like Madadayo quite a bit. Um I don't pick favorites out of the group but um but those two films I think are really touching and I I I really really do appreciate them. I, I almost feel like I mean it it's probably just a coincidence but uh, Madadayo almost feels like Honda, and, or Kurosawa, I'm sorry, and Honda, uh, their tribute in some ways to their own mentor, uh, Kajiro Yamamoto. You know, they were very close to Yamamoto. But yeah, that, that film, I thought, is, um, is very nice. It's a very personal film, and, uh, you know, it's not as uh, big in scope. It's more personal and more uh, down-to-earth, uh, and it's very much about the experiences of people, you know, left behind living through the wartime in the city. And uh, I enjoy it very much.
1: This will be our last question. Um, obviously, Honda was a huge fan of cinema. Do you know what some of his favorite films were? And do you know if he kept up with movies um, or just like recent movies as, as they were coming out?
3: Well,
2: he was very much a, even though he he saw a a wide variety of films, especially uh, during the time that he was um, growing up and um, and then when he was a a student at the university um, as we write in the book, sometimes his classes would be cancelled and he'd go off to a movie house and just watch movies for the afternoon, uh, including a lot of uh american and uh imported films and then during the fifties uh there's also some anecdotes in the f- book about him um just dragging dragging his kid off to see like you know italian films uh, at a you know an art house type of cinema uh but he was very much a uh an entertainment filmmaker at heart and um he actually you know expressed admiration. For uh, directors like Spielberg uh, and films like *Close Encounters*, but you know, he he was a populist. He was he felt a great kinship, uh, you know, closeness to the audience, and he felt a great uh, responsibility to enter- entertain. He did have themes and stories that were very important to him, but more than anything, he felt um, a responsibility to. To entertain to keep people interested and he actually you know would express um a little bit of regret that sometimes maybe he allowed his themes and ideas to take a backseat to some of the more spectacular elements of the films particularly in the genre pictures but um uh, but at the in the end of the day at the end of the day he is very proud of what he had accomplished and um you know the his greatest satisfaction was um you know the fact that the audience connected with his films i mean that's his legacy that's the remarkable uh achievement that he left behind this this big body of work that um you know is still with us and is still you know finding new fans and new generations of of viewers i think uh and the fact that um, there's still new things that we're learning from these films, partly because, you know, in large part, they've been ignored critically for so long. And so it's only now that we're, you know, coming back to some of them and looking at them a little deeper and trying to figure out uh, what he was trying to say. So we're finally getting around to connecting with Honda, not only on. a a visceral level an entertainment level but on a, a more thematic uh level and, and looking at some of his work putting it under the microscope a little bit more
0: besides uh close encounters and some of the spielberg stuff were there any other genre movies that uh he you know he might have uh been a fan of besides like the king kong and stuff like that and war of the worlds i think you mentioned
2: Right. Are you talking about newer films?
0: Either or, you know, I mean, sev- stuff from, you know, I guess, when he was older, like stuff in the 70s and 80s or older stuff.
2: Yeah, that's interesting. I, you know, uh, I know you mentioned the Spielberg films. Uh, I would have liked to have asked him what he thought of something like Star Wars.
0: Right, yeah. <laughs> you know,
2: I, I really w- wish, you know, th- we, like I said, we went through a lot of interviews where people spoke to him at length No, they never asked him that, unfortunately. I would have liked to have known that myself. Or Jaws, or, you know, uh, (laughs) any number of films from that time period, you know. Alien. Uh, Alien, all the disaster films of the 70s. Um, Hmm. The 76 King
3: Kong.
2: (laughs) 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 Because that incorporates a lot of the techniques from his own films, right? Right, yeah. Um, I have to think that he must have seen some of those pictures, but you know nobody ever brought it Orca? up. And that's
0: <laughs> was, Orca, he big, right? was he a big Orca fan? <laughs> yeah, there you go.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, Steve, thank you so much for uh, coming on and being uh, being a part of the podcast.
2: Dear Lord, it's like three forty where you are. You're crazy,
1: uh, dude. Three forty a.m.,
2: not p.m.
1: Uh, I have to be up in like four hours. I'm good going for to you. Burned. <laughs> when we talked to norman
0: <laughs> when we talked to norman i think it was like 6 a.m here it was 6 a.m yeah, <laughs>
2: you're watching the it. sun come up and uh looking I out the window wondering what you're doing with your life
1: smoke. hoping my son slept until like 10 o'clock and not you know getting up at seven
2: <laughs> oh they never do they wake yeah. up at at six o'clock in the morning on weekends because they want to watch tv or do whatever they do play video games but on um, weekdays when it's time to go to school you're like banging a drum in the room trying they won't get up
0: <laughs> i've been there yeah
1: well i gotta go to bed I
2: have to get up yeah,
0: sure yeah. <laughs> thanks again steve
3: okay guys thanks again i appreciate
0: your yeah. help yeah
3: no problem